Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. On today's show, we have our very own partner, Sia Hushanya, who's going to be talking to us about Asia. Specifically, Sia just came back from a very long trip long by our feelings, internet years, um, across Asia. And um, he had a chance to meet a lot of uh, investors and some founders and some of the local community leaders and reflect upon what the differences are between Europe and Asia. So welcome, Sia. Thanks a lot for having me, Carlos. So in order to help people better understand kind of what we're going to be talking about, uh, maybe you can just walk us through your agenda. Yes. So it was a four weeks trip. I was uh, for two weeks in China, spending time in uh, Shanghai and Beijing. Then also went to Hong Kong, where I spent a week and ended the trip in Singapore before heading back to Europe. And, you know, one of the things that is helpful sometimes is to anchor the core takeaways from the podcast uh, early on. And maybe in that spirit, you can help us. What are the three takeaways about what you took away from conversations with investors and founders uh, that differentiate Europe from Asia? So one big surprise for me was that the VCs in China do operate very differently from what I've seen in Europe or the US. And I'm sure we'll have time to discuss this further. Uh, but I would say that was clearly something that... Uh, was unexpected. The second one, I was much more familiar with the Chinese ecosystem, having read and listened to quite a few podcasts about China before this trip, but I didn't know much about the size of the opportunity in Southeast Asia. And uh, I just thought after the trip that actually uh, we, we don't know much about that region here in Europe, but the potential is huge. And funnily, I could see some similarities between the ecosystem in Southeast Asia in, and Europe. So that was really interesting for me. Before you go on to the third one, and for the listeners, I don't want to make any assumptions. So walk us through what, what countries represent that, that region, the Southeast Asia region. Sure. So as I said, I was uh, myself... In Singapore, and a lot of the VCs would have Singapore as a base in that region and would just end up traveling a lot across the different countries. I think Indonesia is clearly the number one economy in that region, you know, 220 million plus population. So a lot of the VCs, even in China, actually uh, flagged the fact that they were excited about the opportunity in Indonesia. After Indonesia, you have countries like Vietnam and uh, Thailand and the uh, Philippines uh, that are also growing really fast and are relatively large countries. And uh, after that uh, uh, second tier, you have like smaller countries like Laos, Myanmar, uh, that are probably at the moment smaller opportunities, but uh, over the next years probably will also uh, start to represent exciting locations for uh, tech innovation. And the third point? The third point, I think, uh, for me, 
uh, moving a bit away from uh, just uh, discussions and learnings from uh, just chatting with other investors and entrepreneurs, more generally also uh, meeting uh, friends of friends in, uh, in China and across uh, Asia. I was just really surprised by like the fact that they have a different attitude towards tech. I think nowadays in Europe and in the US, obviously, often for the right reasons. I mean, tech can be criticized and people are really reflecting about the impact that uh, technology has on our society. I think in China and uh, in the Southeast Asian region, I saw just a lot of smiles when I was uh, chatting with uh, the people from the ecosystem. And uh, they were really seeing tech as a force for good, as a just force that was uh, allowing this uh, huge population to uh, accelerate its uh, upgrade. And uh, I thought that was quite refreshing somehow. Well, that's a good starting point. Um, maybe we go into a little bit more of the detail across those three takeaways. So let's start off with the, the, the main one, which is how VCs in China approach things differently. Maybe walk us through some of the meetings you had, some of the core assumptions around investing in tech versus growth, and maybe some of the other assumptions that, that maybe we either have wrong or that you, you, you figured out while your time there. Yeah, so simple things, you know, but uh, from, for example, portfolio construction, I heard top VCs in China telling me that they were investing in anywhere between 60 to 100 companies a year. Uh, I had VCs that I thought were really focused on like early stage that pretty quickly explained to me that at the end, they are looking just for outsized opportunities and that if they see a series B, C, where like they still think there is a lot of upside potential, they would not be scared to commit a 50 million check to that late stage round. I think some of the important things to understand and that make that ecosystem different in China is that the path to liquidity is also much faster. So I was looking at uh, an article quite recently around the IPOs in China, of not in China, but the IPOs of Chinese companies in 2018 compared to the tech IPOs that we had of American companies in 2018. And you could see that the average time to IPO for the American companies was eight to 10 years, actually closer even to 10 years. And the Chinese one were in average three to four years old. I think at Seedcamp, we often speak about the fact that it takes time to build an ecosystem and that you need to see those companies scale and succeed and get to liquidity and then get that capital recycled and those learnings also recycled in the ecosystem. And I believe the incredible growth of the Chinese ecosystem over the past 10 years is uh, also explained by that faster path to liquidity. And this means that you had VCs telling me that they were raising new funds every year and weren't on that cycle of maybe 2.5, 3.5 years deployment period. Uh, you had a, a much more aggressive mindset towards investing wherever the growth is. I think there, there's been also a bit of this kind of 
gold rush attitude over the past 10 years in China. No real legacy infrastructure, no large incumbents to fight. And there's a bit of this impression that everything is going so fast. The government also has been very supportive of the tech ecosystem and that the the Googles of uh, tomorrow are being built today and that you need to make sure that you might not have the healthiest unit economics, but that if you have the reach and that you own the consumer, you will be in an incredibly strong position to hold that position for the next few decades. Mm. But uh, some of the things there that you, you brought up are, are quite interesting to look at in, in contrast to, to Europe. You know, you talked about fund life and fund composition um, and the speed of investing. And of course, that impacts not only founders and, and, and how they receive funding. You know, you mentioned some of these VCs are investing at such a fast clip that in some ways you could say, you could argue that founders have a better chance of fundraising in China. But there's also other elements, which is how much time does an investor spend with a founder and how much does it differ in expectations founders have of investors in value add? You know, we talk about platforms mm -hmm. in, in Europe and, and the U.S. You see platforms like Andreessen Horowitz's. What does that play out like in China? Interestingly, during my entire trip, I heard none of the VCs I've met and I met uh, I think over 30 VCs over the trip, none of them mentioned that they were building a platform of support for their portfolio companies. I think they, they definitely are value-add investors, but in the most kind of simple sense of it, trying to help their companies with their network, their understanding of what very rapid expansion across China means and what's the playbook for this. And uh, in some cases for the companies that have already reached massive scale in China, also what early internationalization could look like. Most of the investors I met were really laser focused on that. So the ones that were investing in a very large number of companies were rather doubling down on hiring investment professionals than trying to add a layer of services for their portfolio. Mm. So different approach to what we see more and more here in Europe and in the US. And, and to sort of further that contrast, how does that play out in terms of deal structures? So I think in terms of deal structure, um, things are also changing. I heard some uh, very early stage investors telling me that uh, the terms you could see in uh, early stage deals in China were probably more aggressive than what we would be used to in Europe. But I think this is also changing as just the VC environment is becoming so competitive that a lot of like the investors I've met were just uh, very humble in their way to describe the their decision-making process and saying that at the end they are totally conscious that there's a lot of capital in the ecosystem even if you want to like raise from like tier one firm there's probably now 10 firms that are really uh, reputable and have a strong track record and that for the best entrepreneurs they are basically the one that have most of the leverage and so I believe the terms also are now evolving 
um, in the early years of the Chinese tech ecosystem, probably that uh, you had a few of like those kind of uh, bad stories that uh, made the investors a bit more cautious and uh, just like encourage them to maybe have in the legals more uh, specific uh, rights written down. But uh, I think just the competitive environment is, also is, on the VC side means that now uh, everyone is everyone stepping up. Well, actually, exactly. that, that's, a good, yeah. that's, a good, that's a good way of transitioning to talking about competitiveness in general. Mm -hmm. You know, you can assume that with such a large market, there's going to be hyper -comp uh, competitive uh, uh, tendencies. Yeah. Maybe walk us through how both investors and founders tackle that because, I mean, You know, we're talking about how in the Valley now 50% of money goes into cost of acquisition. In some case of VC money goes into cost of acquisition costs for their startups. What does that look like in China? Good question. I heard from a few investors that uh, competitive advantage is not enough there. You need an unfair advantage. That uh, simple business model innovation would definitely not do any more the job in 2019. And uh, you need something that is much more differentiated. I think that the channels for acquisition are very different from the ones we are used to in the West. I've seen companies that uh, were like really emphasizing how much the online to offline experience was important and how potentially it was also a mix of like online and offline acquisition that would allow them very early on to uh, establish their early traction. So really at the earliest stage already think about offline tactics. I've seen companies mentioning, so you hear, I think increasingly in the West that uh, they were really approaching it with uh, trying to have a more grassroots approach and uh, really trying to leverage like, user-generated content and also micro-influencers. Uh, so interestingly in uh, China, you have quite a few companies that are successfully surfing on that concept of social commerce. I think in the West, it was an idea that didn't really take off. Somehow you had Pinterest that uh, was the closest to that, but Pinterest now is much more of an inspiration platform, discovery platform than an actual commerce platform. Uh, in China, quite a few companies managed to make this work. Uh, you have, for example, Pinduoduo, that uh, just over the past two, three years had uh, incredible growth, really focusing rather on tier two, tier three cities. Uh, you have then targeting a totally different segment, a uh, platform called uh, Xiaongshu, where uh, basically they are like the go-to platform also for everything cr cross-border commerce and where you have clearly a more affluent segment of the population that would uh, um, use that as their platform of choice for everything, commerce and discovery. And uh, just like seeing like those companies reaching uh, 100 millions of users in like two years, three years, is uh, it's really astonishing because like those numbers are not things that we are used to in Europe or in the US. Mm. Well, if we keep on going down that path, it begs the question about Uh, European or global companies trying to enter that already mm -hmm. hyper-competitive environment. So maybe walk us through a little bit about how you see uh, companies entering and 
you know, there's this sort of uh, myth that maybe you start off in a, a city like Hong Kong and then you expand in versus starting in Singapore and entering into China. Just walk us through how um, non, non-native companies manage that. So f- from my experience, China is a totally different beast. So the truth is that if you are serious about entering China, you need to put the resources behind your China strategy and you can't enter China by like first entering Singapore or Hong Kong. I think that uh, you really need to build a local presence and uh, try to really build that uh, knowledge in your team of uh, what um, product, user experience, distribution channels, even payment, cloud infrastructure you need to use to be successful in China. And to do so, you need to hire locally and you need to be ready to localize your product. I think too many Western companies being successful in their early international expansions were seeing China as just one other country where they could push their product and get quickly large number of users, given that such a large population, it seemed easy for any Western app to just like get a few million users in China. But actually, it's a hyper-competitive environment and you really need to put the resources behind the China strategy. And I think that's the mistake that a lot of like the Western tech giant made over the past few years, that they probably didn't localize enough their offering for China. What was quite interesting for me also to see was the fact that uh, the the distribution channels are just much more fragmented than in uh, the West. And uh, depending on the product you have, on some of the alliances that you might have formed with some of the tech giants or the Tencent or Alibaba of this world that are also very active from an investment point of view, you might decide to focus on one or another distribution channel. And uh, that was something I wasn't that conscious of before spending more time there and discussing with some of the uh, local entrepreneurs. Mm. So this is probably a bit of an unfair question. Um, but I was having a chat with uh, somebody yesterday about uh, why China is going to win. And so with every debate, you can always say, you know, China is not going to win because of X, but you can also debate why China is going to win. And, you know, based upon some of these things that we talked about right now, hyper-competitive environment, difficulty for external entry, um, the, the complex navigation, distributed channels, um, and, and, and basically just generally not... Um, not, not in some ways as mapped out as some parts mm. of the world. Why do you think China's going to win? If you look at just the, the size of the, of the local market, just even using WeChat during a few weeks and seeing how it's ingrained in pretty much every single thing you would do during your day. So that means that there's, tons of data that is being captured around every single of your action, this obviously creates tremendous network effect. And uh, 
then coupling that with the large amount of capital available and the fact that uh, the government has been pretty supportive of the ecosystem, yes, th this gives you a lot of reasons why China might win. Then I think it's probably a more complex story than that. China is uh, already one of uh, the leading technology hub. There are areas, for example, in like more fundamental AI research, where I believe a lot of the Western universities are still ahead. But China, um, again, like when it comes to machine learning, computer vision, is just accumulating such huge data sets that are allowing them to um, now like have also multi-billion dollar companies in those areas. So it's interesting then seeing uh, also how like some of like those Chinese companies are thinking about internationalization. We were speaking before about how difficult it is for Western companies to enter China and there are not many of them that have been successful at doing so. But somehow I had, for example, a conversation with uh, the head of international of Mobike and uh, International expansion for them, especially in the West, has been very challenging. Often in the West, you see consumers not really understanding some of those Chinese products. I think sometimes those Chinese companies are not really adjusting their story to the Western consumer. And I don't think they've cracked this kind of more like global um, expansion. It's still in some markets, neighboring markets, Chinese companies have been able to, to grow very fast. And interestingly, you now even see, uh, some of like the largest, uh, Chinese, uh, tech players investing, uh, anywhere from Southeast Asia to even Latin America. And some of them trying to enter Middle East or Europe or even Africa. So it's definitely happening. There, there is an interest from some of those companies to expand globally, but I don't think they cracked it at all. So I don't think we will end up in a world where it's all about Chinese tech, clearly not. Mm. I think talking about Chinese tech, one of the things that you were, you were mentioning to me was um, owning sort of the, the perception that China might not yet own or will own consumer tech innovation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in a, while, while you focus on that also, how is it that um, the Chinese consumer and the growth of there will affect the consumption of, of uh, consumer tech? And then lastly, kind of the role that, you know, the, the mega app, the super app has to tie that all together. Yeah. It was quite interesting discussing with some of uh, the top consumer investors in China had, uh, for example, the chance to meet the founder of uh, Clearview Partners in uh, Shanghai. And uh, he was telling me that uh, in the West, we haven't been used to see any consumer success come out of China. And uh, now with the rise of uh, TikTok and uh, probably soon other Chinese apps, the Western consumers, or maybe not the Western consumers, but Western media are a bit scared about uh, basically being invaded by Chinese tech. His view was that 
that won't be the case. It's just that we'll have a much more diverse world where some of like the uh, consumer innovation will still come from US or European apps. And then we'll also see Chinese players uh, playing a significant role there. So yeah, I thought it was a, an interesting view. Uh, definitely just seeing in London uh, all uh, the younger generation using TikTok and how quickly uh, the app has expanded was a quite interesting phenomenon over the past few months. I think in the past you had a few other Chinese gaming companies that were successful in the West. I mean, Tencent is the largest entertainment company in the world, a gaming company in the world. But uh, the the Western consumer wasn't very conscious that actually the game he might be playing is owned by a Chinese company. So with TikTok, it's clearly different. Then to some of your other points, what is interesting also is just if you now refocus on the opportunity in China, you have like this old consumer upgrade happening there. And uh, I think when you're looking at China, uh, it's interesting to just understand their system of uh, tiered cities. So you have like the tier one cities, of, uh, the Shanghai, Beijing, Shenzhen, uh, that are really leading the charge where the consumer is probably as sophisticated as in any huge European or US city. And uh, then now, a lot of the consumer investors in China seem to, on one side, try to understand what are like the new priorities of the consumers in those tier one cities. So, um, for example, trying to now invest more into lifestyle, into uh, outdoor activities, entertainment, all those being uh, definitely uh, core areas of interest if you're trying to invest in the Chinese consumer of tier one cities. But then at the same time, uh, looking, for example, at the success of uh, Pinduoduo that we mentioned before, how you can now gain very quickly huge traction in tier two, tier three cities where the upgrade is also happening. So this is something really interesting to see on the, the that pace of change means that, uh, there's still for a lot of those Chinese investors a huge opportunity to just invest uh, in mainland China. And that's also, I think, for now, why their interest for investment in Southeast Asia or in other regions is still relatively limited. Then I think when you look also at that Chinese consumer, I mean, and that's been also probably a challenge for Western companies, They've been used over the past few years to a totally different uh, app landscape. This concept of super app in China, with obviously WeChat being the leading one, where you have a lot of services that are just aggregated into one. And uh, this also means that for new value propositions, it's difficult to find a place in that already very competitive and quite uh, mature app environment. So either you need to find a segment where maybe the consumer has been underserved or you need to have an actual like 
product innovation that brings a tremendously better experience. If not, it will be very difficult as a independent player to be successful in what is already now a very major environment. Mm. So let's take a tack and move to Southeast Asia for a little bit. Yeah. Um, walk us through why that totally changed your perspective before you came there. Why it is an area that, you know, people tend to sometimes not think about when they think about Asia because, it, you know, China casts a, a big shadow. But walk us through what you picked up. Yeah, I thought Southeast Asia was a very interesting region because you could see that the investors uh, were trying to take uh, some of the ideas coming from mainland China, some of the ideas coming from the West, and then trying to mix all that in a way that is the most relevant to the specificities of the region. So I thought that mix and that openness to trends coming from all over the world was really interesting. The market itself um, is quite fragmented uh, in the sense that you have uh, all those smaller countries so somehow similar to Europe and uh, you also have different cultures, different languages, but there seem to be huge opportunities in areas going from commerce and logistics to finance and uh, a lot of the investors there were telling me what we are excited about is that in that region, you have this three billion plus of GDP that is being techified. And uh, to some extent, it looked like a bit China six, seven years ago. And uh, there's just huge opportunities to build tech giant in that region. And I think the investors were still trying to figure out where like those success stories will come from. Uh, you have, for example, apps like Gojek and uh, Grab that took more like the um, super app model of, uh, of a WeChat in China and uh, seemed to grow successfully in Southeast Asia. But uh, given that the market is still smaller than China, it's not also a given that that super app model would work for that region. But generally speaking, um, I thought that uh, you had very sophisticated investors also in the region and uh, that somehow the venture capital landscape and uh, where you already had quite a lot of capital, which was more at the earlier stage, quite similarly to Europe, and where you still had some of those capital gaps in the later stage where for now, you still see a lot of the money coming from the Chinese tech giant meant that there is still tremendous opportunity, both from a VC perspective, but also from a, a just a company building perspective to uh, build companies that will really own that region. And uh, I thought that was really interesting. And it's not really something that... Uh, I was aware of before spending a bit of time speaking to entrepreneurs and investors there. Mm. And one of the things that is probably worth uh, sharing with people is any discoveries that you had in terms of what those countries or, or, or the group of the countries have as uh, leadership hubs. So in Europe, you know, mm. we have certain cities, certain countries that, that start flourishing, you know, the, the, 
in Finland, you had rodeo generate leadership across the game. Mm-hmm. In Finland, of course, it has many other things, but one of the yeah. things that it has is leadership in that sense. Like maybe if you want to walk through uh, a couple of things that you know, maybe Singapore is is, is maybe rising up on, and, and maybe Southeast Asia or Hong Kong. Yeah, a couple of tidbits there. If you look at the region, what came uh, from a few of the discussion was that uh, Vietnam was uh, really becoming a hub for excellence when it comes to engineering. Apparently, quite a few of uh, the tech companies in the region would also perceive Thailand as a hub of excellence for design. Generally speaking, I think there's still a gap in terms of engineering talent in the region, much more than what you would see in China. But the skills are like improving very quickly. And uh, I think Singapore being itself a pretty small market, what was interesting is uh, that quite a few of uh, the other markets seem to still look up at uh, uh, some of the Singapore giants. And so basically, if you manage, especially for a B2B business to get Uh, your first POCs in Singapore, it might be then a pretty good way to expand across the region with like the subsidiaries of that multinational that might have its uh, headquarter in Singapore. So those were like some of the dynamics I've seen in that region. Um, all across the region, you had a uh, lot of uh, interest for uh, areas like you know, supply chain, obviously, logistics, uh, credit, and uh, on one side having this like consumer upgrade, but on the other side also the region being a huge hub for manufacturing, for shipment of goods. So the, the potential around anything from, you know, oil and gas in Singapore to then logistics across all the region, was uh, something that uh, kept the investors quite excited. Mm. Well, maybe to wrap things up here, you can give us your thoughts on how this trade dispute that's going on right now will affect um, us and, and, and the region. Yeah. Um, so the, the Chinese tech ecosystem seem uh, to, to always look up to, to Silicon Valley and uh, They had a lot of admiration for what had been achieved by some of those large U.S. tech companies. And you already had over the past few years quite a few bridges built between the Valley and China in terms of uh, capital flow and uh, even in terms of, uh, obviously, U.S. companies um, like, for example, Airbnb actually successfully managing to 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 enter China. And so somehow I think there's quite a lot of disappointment there. And there is probably an opportunity for Europe to build stronger ties with, uh, with China. I mean, uh, from a political and uh, economical perspective, obviously China is uh, putting a lot of resources behind this uh, Belt and Road Initiative, which are kind of like those new trade routes for Eurasia. And so there is an interest also in China for uh, 
the European ecosystem. I think they still recognize that uh, there is academic excellence in Europe, that uh, in areas like fintech, AI, but also industry 4.0, automotive, they do respect a lot uh, Europeans' excellence. And I think there's a potential to just uh, attract maybe more capital from China to Europe and uh, build more ties and partnerships between European companies and some of those Chinese tech giants. Potentially, uh, we would see also more M&A activity coming from China into Europe. So all those things are potentially interesting trends that uh, we could expect for the next few years when we look at uh, the China and European ecosystem. Exciting times here. Thanks for the summary of your trip. That was really, really insightful. And uh, for those of you that want to follow Sia on Twitter, what is it, Sia? At Hushang Sia. I told you to change that. Anyway, guys, I'm sure you will find it on our show notes. It was great having Sia here. And until next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. And leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.